Hi, I'm Dave Kittrich, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And today, I am completely thrilled to introduce the award-winning director of Trick, the Lizzie McGuire movie, as well as the landmark TV movie Wedding Wars, as well as a special place in my heart personally, Jim Fall. Hello, Jim. Hello, David. How are you? (laughs) And our other guest is the fantastic and iconic drag performer featured in Trick, Girls Will Be Girls, Will and Grace, and whose YouTube video where she plays Grand Theft Auto has to be seen to be disbelieved. Miss Coco Peru. Hi. You guys are both fantastic. Thank you so much for coming to our inaugural episode of The Outcast. Jim, I'll start with you. When you started your career, you were in New York and your first feature out of the box as a baby gay is the iconic trick from 1999, which, you know, regularly still shows up on top 10 lists everywhere. So, Take me through it. How did Trick come to be, and when did you finally get the bug to make a movie? Because I know you were involved in theater before that. Well, I went to NYU Film School uh, as an undergrad and always wanted to make movies. And uh, and I have to say, I wasn't a baby gay because I was 35 by the time that movie got no, made. No, you're not supposed to say that, Jim. You're supposed to be like, <laughs> yeah, I was 22. Um, no, I, I was, was a baby gay. But I'd already tried to get a couple things made. In fact, so many of my early attempts included Miss Coco Peru, by the way, uh, both theater and film. Uh, I had written a script called 88s that took place in the piano bar that actually we shot in in Trick. Um, Cindy Lauper had gotten involved, Nathan Lane, Stanley Tucci, uh, Charles Bush. Anyway, I wrote this screenplay, wrote a part for Miss Coco. The movie took a long time not to happen. Then I directed a play I co-wrote with Robin Kerrigan called uh, Blood Orgy of the Carnival Queens. I remember it. I remember (laughs) being in New York at the time. And I think I told you, I lived above 88s for four years. Right out of NYU when I went to NYU. I literally was in the building, 222 West 10th Street. That's crazy. I don't know how we didn't run into each other. It was because of that play that I found what turned into Trick. Because And Coco Coco Peru, Clinton Loop, was in that play also. And and, uh, Clinton, you were hilarious and amazing. In fact, you were the only one that got good reviews out of all of us. Standing (laughs) amongst the debris. Exactly. (laughs) He never never ceases to remind me that the one one of the many bad reviews said, it, it basically spent four paragraphs telling us how terrible our show was. And then in the last paragraph, it said, standing amongst the debris is Miss Coco Peru. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of review we all well, secretly wish we could have, like to be compared to debris. That's well, Coco. I don't wish it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make a long story longer. Uh, an actor named Eric Bernat, I'd asked the cast if anybody had read a good script. <clears throat> an actor in the play named Eric Bernat had said he'd read the script called Gay Boy, written by Jason Schaefer. I said I thought that title was hilarious. And kind of the rest is history. I met Jason, I loved the script, and then we took four years to get the thing made. And uh, by that was 94. By 98, we were shooting it. And then and then you premiered at Sundance in 1999. And, and, yes. And that was basically... and to. to kind of put it in terms that people can understand with regard to where queer film was at the time. You know, the the new queer cinema, you know, the Gus Van Sant, Todd Haynes, you know, Malanoche, My Own Private Idaho, Poison, Go Fish, all that stuff. Those were like in kind of like 93, 94, or I'm sorry, Poison was before that, right? Poison was like 89, 90. But all that stuff in The Living End, that was a huge deal in the early 90s. By the late 90s, you were seeing movies that were much more kind of like, okay, why isn't there like a gay while you were sleeping? Why wasn't there a gay like kind of mainstreamy kind of thing? And the genius about Trek is, I mean, continues to be, um, it's got an extremely gay sensibility and it's got a naughtiness to it, but it's inherently super duper sweet. Well, that was one of the things I think that intimidated me were all those early 80s art artsy movies early 90s right early 90s i'm sorry early 90s <laughs> are uh arty gay movies which some i liked a few i liked and most i to be honest i didn't love i didn't love them because are, are you I'm, allowed to say that in on an outfest podcast i'm just saying i'm, I'm, I'm afraid the programmers past will come at you with like pitch when i say or when i say i didn't love i don't mean they're bad movies i say they're just not they weren't my cup of tea i didn't right. I, you know their art films where i make you know, more of an, enter- I make entertainment is what I make. <laughs> 
So, well, uh, I, I think you sell yourself a little short. I think that trick is entertainment, but by dint of the fact that it exists, and by dint of the fact that when Coco comes into it about halfway, is it halfway or like like a little more than halfway through, it, it, it is somewhat subversive. It does become kind of a different kind of movie. Well, I mean, I think it's subversive because it's, I mean, yes, I think it's deceptively subversive because it's kind of like a spoonful of sugar in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, a rom-com, but everybody's gay. There's no homophobia. And at that point, there were no movies that I can remember where people were just gay and there wasn't any, um, it wasn't an issue movie. It wasn't about AIDS. It wasn't about, you know, fag bashing. It wasn't about any, you know, falling in love with a straight guy, which is one of my pet peeves about a lot of gay movies. Oh, me early, too. Early, yeah. early gay movies. Yeah. Um, it, and even even the character of Rich, the straight roommate that Gabriel, the gay character, lives with, isn't homophobic. He's just an asshole. You know what I mean? This, he doesn't right. care. He doesn't care that Gabriel's sleeping with guys. He just he's just uh, you know self involved. So you and Clinton were friends and coworkers even before Trick. How did you guys meet? Clinton, maybe you should tell us that. I'm sick of hearing myself talk. Me too. It's been seven and a half minutes. I know. <laughs> um, Lord. I did a show at 88's and Jim Fall's boyfriend at the time, Matt Berman, was my lighting and sound technician. And Jim came to see my show and then kept returning. Yeah, because you were dating Matt and it was like we were yeah. like a family there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, would hang out afterwards. And then um, you asked me to be in 88's, the movie. Yeah. Which... You know, gained some traction, but you know, I always uh, remember Jim. I never liked that one part, and I tr always try to convince you to change it, but you wouldn't change it. Which part? Which part? The ketchup. I didn't buy the ketchup. Oh, I don't remember. There's there was there was a gay bashing in that movie, and and you had it set up earlier in the movie that Nathan Lane's character carries ketchup around in his pocket. Oh yeah, ketchup packets. And then he gets gay bashed, and. <laughs> And then pretends the ketchup is blood and smears it on the gay basher, telling him that he has AIDS. And it was oh, yeah. something along those lines, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you make it sound terrible the way you just pitched it. Because but... <laughs> it was. <laughs> Granted. All right. Granted. And the first editorial casualty of this podcast, we have David, finally arrived David, at. Oh, no. David, don't no. edit anything of this out. No, no, no. This is, this is the reality, no. and this is what people want to hear. They don't no, want to hear right. all the charming stories. They want to hear the ugly, gory uh, relationship that Jim and I have. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're cutting that part out, by the way. One more thing I want to say about 88s and we can move on is at even at that time, and that was around 89, 88 that I wrote it, right? What I was already seeing in movies was there, there wasn't any movie where someone with HIV lives at the end and doesn't die somehow. That wasn't a tragic, sad story. We were going yeah. through a very sad time as gay people. All of our friends were dying, but there wasn't, I knew so many people at the cabaret at 88s who were living with HIV, and I kept putting myself in their position, like, well, where's the hope? Like, where? And so this movie was about someone who finds out they're HIV positive and decides to live at the end. And that was back, you know, in 1989. That was yeah. a still It was novel. still a death sentence. That was like, was, because the triple cocktail, which yeah. then became... The, 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 you know, what PrEP and, and all the other stuff right. that we, we use to manage HIV today, that all started in 1996. Before 1996, it was just AZT. And yes. people forget when you got like, you know, and I'm, I'm only on the cusp because I came out in 92, 93, excuse me. I was 20, actually. I hadn't turned 21 yet. I would turn 21 later in 93. And, but so I was just after the real wave of, of, of AIDS deaths. I mean, it was happening and it, and it would continue to peak through the early 90s but people my age generally speaking we were just terrified because we were supposed to be terrified and it was the right thing to do you, like when you came out you were told like you know you had to wrap yourself in latex or else you know th this was a death sentence you were going to die so an hiv diagnosis at this point was was you know it uh, people i don't think understand today or at least older people do but but certainly no one under the age of i don't know 35 really i think gets how completely traumatizing 
and life-changing that was. Suddenly you didn't have a life to plan for. And I do want to say something here. Taking all of what you just said into consideration, when Jim was presented with Gay Boy as a script that later became Trick, my character wasn't even in it at the time, but Jim asked me to read it. And I said to Jim, you know what, Jim, put 88s away. Because even though he did feel strongly about that message that he wanted to present, to me at that point, it already felt like what we really needed was a movie about two gay boys looking for a place to have sex where it wasn't anything, there was no, like you said earlier, it wasn't about AIDS, it wasn't about a gay bashing, it wasn't about any of those things. To me, that felt fresh and new. Now it might seem not so new, but at that time, I really felt like that's what the kind of movie I would want to see. It was a breath of fresh air. It really was. And tell me the story of like how Miss Coco Peru and her pivotal role, how did all this come about? What we did was we did a series of readings of the script over over four years. The script evolved. It was a it was a slightly different story when I found it. It was a much I think it was only 70 pages. And again, Jason Schaefer had written it. It was about two boys wandering pretty much, you know, the, all the scenes of them wandering around the West Village. And then they end up having sex in a bathroom at the end of the original, original draft I first read, right? And as any script, it evolved. Jason and I started working together. We started developing the script and it evolved in one reading. And I think it was one of the early, if not the first reading, right? Clint, I don't remember, but I know you... I, what happened was you were holding auditions for the first reading and you asked me if I would come to the auditions and read the other characters against the actors who were coming into oh. audition. Oh, okay. And I was reading the, of course, reading all the parts, but I had read the Tori, the role Catherine that Tori Spelling would later play. And you said at the end of the auditions, you know what, Clinton, why don't you just do the Catherine role for the first reading? And I'll just explain to the audience that in the movie it will be played by a female a person. Right. Uh, and then when we did the first reading, I, of course, stole the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I didn't. But no, everyone, did. you were hilarious. But every, everyone said, you've got to put, keep the um, drag queen in the in the movie. Uh, and I even said to you, that doesn't make sense. I can't be in the movie. Well, and that's when Jason and I realized, OK, we've got to write Coco into the movie where does this, how does this happen? And then that, you know, pivotal scene in the bathroom evolved. And, you know, Coco's a monologuist. So, of course, she's in her wheelhouse doing that amazing monologue. And the whole movie pivots on his character. And everyone, like the two things everyone says to me all the time about Trick is Coco's monologue and uh, Catherine's, uh, you know, uh, cheese, cheese fries scene. They're both, you know, they're oh, yeah, both the cheese fries. Yes. iconic moments. You know, Clint made that scene in the bathroom amazing. We shot it, what, seven times? And I remember, Clint, you left the set crying because you thought it was terrible. And I'm like, it was brilliant. We just, it, it was just, uh, do you remember what was going through your head when we were shooting that? I just remember it was very hot. And at one point we did a take that was really, really good. And a fly flew into this, uh, into my face. And then we, and then we, you said, um, we're running out of film, so now this is the last chance we have to get it. And that pressure was terrifying yeah, to me. It was like, no pressure, no pressure. Yeah. But, but you know what, what killed me, but it didn't, because I'm always going to lean toward making sure the actors' performances are the best, is that the monologue is actually two takes cut together. So, Clint, the fly take is in there, like half of it, um, because, as you know, there's that one little whip pan where there's a cut. We had choreographed the whole thing to be one take, but believe it or not, after seven takes, that it wasn't Clint's fault. It was always like, it was a hard sort of technical thing to shoot in this tiny set and get it right. So there is a little cut in the middle, but there's nothing missing. I, I, luckily, I shot, there's a, a pan that we cut out and it just cuts to Clint when he goes, so I'm licking his balls right before that, <laughs> right before that is a cut. But um, so it's the best of two takes, which is what you know, ended up being the closet. And I just want to bring up, Clinton, that you now have something in common with Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, as as the Star Wars fans know, um, 
was cast as Han Solo only after he was invited by George Lucas to read all the other lines when all these other people like Kurt Russell would come in and read. And so he basically just read like Han Solo against all these people and finally got cast out of nowhere, a total nobody, but just a friend of George Lucas's. It is amazing to me how, uh, you know, it's a decision like that can change the course of one's life. Trick brought me out here and I started doing my show and I would stand outside of the movie theater in West Hollywood with flyers to my show and as people came out from the movie, I would hand them a flyer. And um, sometimes I did it in drag, sometimes out of drag. So the, the movie is what brought me out here. And then while I was out here, I thought, I kind of like Los Angeles because being b- brought up in the Bronx and in New York for some reason where I was told to hate the West Coast. And I got out here with those judgments and quickly realized that uh, I really loved it here. That's a New York thing. I mean, I, I heard that too. I know Jim heard that too. Like, you know, when you live in New York, you there's this, there. I mean, and continues to be this whole like, oh, LA, they don't have much, you know, I don't know, content or, or depth or something. And, and then you move out here and it's like, oh wow, there are like all of these amazing people and all this amazing opportunity. Yeah. I'll never forget when I was handing out those flyers, most people couldn't believe that I would do that. They were like, wow, that's incredible that you would actually stand out here and hand out flyers. But after one of the showings, cause I knew when the movie was showing and I would place myself by the door, this one queen, oh, she pushed that door open so hard, and I, I thought, oh, that was a little aggressive. And I went to hand him a postcard, and before I, he saw what it was, he just looked at me. He didn't know who I was because I wasn't drag, and he screamed, that was the worst fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's at least one person that hated it. Oh, no, no, no. You know who else hated it? Roger Ebert. Roger he didn't Ebert. hate it. He didn't hate it. He gave hated it like two stars. He didn't hate it. He gave us a terrible review. He gave two stars out of four. He didn't like it. He didn't hate it. New York Times. Everybody gave us. And Kathy knew Jimmy. Oh, she's. (laughs) She hated it too. She told me that at a party. Well, I'm not a fan of her work either. It's it's only one of the top ten like gay movies ever made, as according to like a bajillion different surveys. But yeah, New York versus you know New York versus California. I mean, to be honest, I really wanted to move the hell out here sooner than I did, but I wanted to get trick made first. So I couldn't wait to get my butt out here. I'd lived in New York City for what, 17 years at that point. And trick was kind of my Valentine goodbye to New York because I knew I needed to be in California, but I didn't want to come out here without a movie made. And so luckily trick evolved and then pretty much everybody in the movie, you know, went West. And I just want to talk very briefly about that last shot. The last shot of trick is just such a beautiful, loving, wonderful shot. Can you just talk about how you got that? Because for such a, I mean, again, this movie cost what, like two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it was shot no, it on was, sixteen millimeter. It was very low budget. It cost four fifty all in, shot on super sixteen on film. Um, and you got a crane shot at the yeah, end, and it looked shot. gorgeous. That was our only crane. I mean, we had that crane shot. We had that crane for one, like a couple of hours. And then we actually went past our time and the cops were trying to kick us out. And then we finally got that shot. But, you know, I I was always obsessed with the World Trade Centers as a kid because of King Kong, Jessica Lange in King Kong. So I had this short film on YouTube that I shot on film in 1976 when I first went to New York City. And basically it's just a hundred shots of the Trade Center, right? You put that up on YouTube, I think. Yeah, it's on YouTube. People yeah. can find it on YouTube. I don't, I yeah, don't remember yeah. what it's called, but it's, it's yeah. up there. When you watch Trick, I, I didn't realize in, until retros, in retrospect that there are like five shots of the Trade Center in the movie. And what was so lovely was the year after two, uh, 9-11, the Museum of Modern Art had a, a New York film festival that was um, supposed to sort of just, you know, give people a little joy and happiness about the city, right? And they included movies like Manhattan and and Trick. Trick was among like 15 movies they were playing, I believe, at the Museum of Modern Art. So we um, we are art. I did make an art film. You know, drag, drag queens have never been treated as equals in the gay community. And it still happens now. It's not, you're not taken seriously. You can go on an audition and, and people will say things to you that they would never say to another person. And Hollywood, as liberal or as 
free thinking as they think they are. Drag queens have always been uh, shitted upon on some level. In the same way, I feel like racism, people who say, well, I'm not a racist. You know, I love drag queens. I love, but they don't know the little ways in which they are uh, drag phobic, you know. So I do find it interesting that um, drag has come so far and I always knew it could. I knew, always knew it had the power to transform people because we, we, it's interesting in film and television that drag has become what it's become. I agree. There was talk early on, Jim had said that uh, there was even talk of, we can't have a drag queen do a monologue in the middle of a movie. That's probably something that No, Clint, that you're exactly cut. right. You know, the reason, and I, I, I want to say this again, I have to give credit to... Eric and Ross and and even, you know, Mary Jane Skelsky and, and Good Machine, all the producers, the producers behind Trick, they let me make the movie. Now, granted, the script was together and, and we, but there isn't anything, there's literally no compromise. Like the movie was cast well, it was cast with, you know, the best people we found. And it's not a coincidence that it turned out well. It's because we, all of us in the movie, were supported and allowed to do what we do so well together. And that's an important thing. You know what you're saying, David? And that's an important thing. And what I want to say is that's what's so sad about getting a movie made today. Artists are not always given the freedom to create their vision. Everyone's got to work for their living and give their two cents. And, and somehow they corrupt the art by, by doing that. And, and, and we didn't eat, we were so young. We were just a bunch of friends trying to get a movie made. We didn't realize how lucky we had it when we made Trick, that being given that freedom to create and do things was actually a gift. It wasn't the norm. And maybe I that know. was part of independent filmmaking. I know, I can almost blame Trick for giving me a false idea of what Hollywood would be because it was such a flawlessly creative experience for, for all of us. I mean, it was hard work. It wasn't easy, but it was creatively easy. Um, and then I came to Hollywood and it's like, it was just, everything was by committee. Although I have to say Lizzie McGuire was a shocking surprise because maybe because it was a 12 hour difference and I was in Rome, they couldn't keep up with what I was doing. So I was just doing what I wanted anyway. <laughs> but it wasn't the same. It wasn't like I had, you know, a. in fact, they sent me out there without a producer. I didn't even have a producer. I had nobody on my side. But Trick, we were all making the same movie and we all wanted yeah, to make it. Yeah, we just wanted, everyone loved the script and everyone just wanted to make the best movie possible. I have this very specific memory of going to Sundance with you when Trick premiered. And when the movie, when the credits were rolling, I, I glanced over at you down the, down the aisle at the, I think it was at the Eccles, I'm not sure which theater. And you look, and you had tears in your eyes. I'm like, uh, I, was, I was so happy you loved it because I, I know you can be a, a harsh critic. Right. I did love it. Uh, and I thought the soundtrack was so beautiful. The David Friedman had written that music that I thought was so sweet. I had never heard it before, and it, it really moved me. And But what really moved me about it was, I, as you had said earlier, I, I was so horrified by my performance. And I, I know I'm a little bit of a control freak, and I, I had to give up control to you to do what you do. And I had even called you and said, please cut me out of the movie. And I you, don't remember that. Yes, because I was so worried about uh, making an ass out of myself. So you, you said not to worry about it. And then I was doing wig stock, and I came off the stage, and I was leaving that big crowd with Raphael, and these two um, guys stopped me, and they said, oh, Coco, we just saw a screening of a movie you're in called Trick. You, you, you're hilarious. You kind of steal the movie for us. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. You never told me that. I've never heard yeah, that story. That, yeah, and then I guess that, and then um, we went to Sundance with it, but that was the first time I was seeing it. And I remember the audience laughing so hard during my scene, you couldn't hear half my lines. I know, I know. And um, I was thrilled. And then when it was over, I just had this flashback to being a teenager, and I had gone to the video store and rented my beautiful laundrette, and I watched it secretly in my basement and my father had walked into the room as I was watching it and stood there watching the t television and he looked at me and he said I know why you're watching this wow and I didn't say anything and then he walked out but the movie had such a huge effect on me 
And I remember thinking, even though I wasn't out or anything like that, I said, someday I want to be in a gay movie. So when I was sitting there watching Trick, I had that flashback. And I thought, oh my God, my dream came true. I'm in a gay movie. I'm going to be in a movie that will affect younger gay kids the way my beautiful Laundra affected me. And also, I just want to mention the way Victor Victoria affected me when I was a teenager. Well, you know, I think that's a beautiful story. And it's just, you know, riffing off of that, over these 20, now 21 years, the emails and letters I've gotten from gay men, mostly, who say that this movie helped them come out. Because, you know, we have to remember and put it in perspective that back in 1999, when the movie came out, there wasn't much gay content anywhere. So this was one of the few things out in the world that someone could go see that had a very positive portrayal of people. And I can't say that I went into this movie trying to make a positive movie, you know, to be political. I just made a movie about the people I know and love in the West Village. And Jason Schaefer happened to write this script that dovetailed with my own sensibilities. And the funny thing is, because there was no homophobia, because I personally didn't want to see fag bashing, I didn't want to see another AIDS movie, the no homophobia that we lived in, right, Clint? I mean, pretty much, I mean, you were in, I'm sure as a drag performer, you, you experienced more possible homophobia than I did. But I think young people then, and even now, see the movie and it's, it is, it is a, a moving thing for them because it's a world they want to live in, a world where they're not, where it's not an issue, where they just are. I think that the real subversion of Trick is the fact that it isn't a pathetic gay movie. Like, and, and, and there are some great movies that I would classify as pathetic gay movies, which is basically, you know, it's like, you know, they're dying or they're lusting after a straight guy or there's homophobia or someone gets bashed or whatever. It's like Trick is just you're gay and it's a lovely movie uh, about gay guys looking for a place to Which is why I think it busy. survived survived the, the, the test of time because it's a timeless story. It isn't, it, it's, it's dated in its 1998-ness, but the story is universal and it's, it's never going to get old. Just two people trying to find a connection, you know, that's, that's, that's um, universal. I have a question. Yes. Y yes. So what made you decide to not have the boys have sex in the bathroom? That was in the earliest part of developing the script more with Jason was one of the big ideas I remember discussing with him that, that I remember bringing to the table was, to me, what would make the movie more powerful was if, because in the early draft, again, it's a first draft. Any first draft is, you know, his first draft had was short. I think it was only 70 minutes. And he wanted to make the movie himself and make it all sort of low budget and whatever. And I begged him to let me option it and let's develop this together. So in our conversations, it just made more sense to have them kiss at the end because then the journey is about discovering someone to connect with as opposed to just trying to hook up. And that was sort of the light bulb over my head that made me think that's a lovely journey where we don't see them kiss until the end and that kiss is going to really matter as opposed to them fucking in a bathroom. And to be honest, I did not want anybody fucking in a bathroom because that seemed so old school to me that I wanted them to almost kiss in the bathroom, but I have them go outside, they kiss in broad daylight, right in the center of Sheridan Square on Christopher Street. And, uh, and if you look quickly, there's a purple stripe down Christopher Street. It's, it's literally a few days away from Gay Pride when we shot that. And to me, that's the powerful thing, back then especially, two men kissing in the daylight and it not being an issue. Well, but so. in a way, what's more subversive than a story between two gay guys who just want to, like, get busy, and by the end, they just want to go out on a date. Exactly. I mean, that's and that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's and I do what... remember my when I was dating my first boyfriend in New York City, I remember we would be walking and I would want to hold his hand, but mm -hmm. I knew it was not it was dangerous to hold his hand. And I remember walking with two friends of mine that were a straight couple and they were holding hands. And I said to them, do you see what you're doing right now? And they were like, yeah. what, holding hands? And I said, yeah, do not take that for granted because every time I wanna reach out for my boyfriend's hand, there's a thought of, will I be uh, bashed? Exactly. And so that moment in trick when those two boys did kiss in daylight, Someone watching that now might not think, not might see what it meant back then for a young gay person, and I was younger then, to watch that. That did feel powerful to me. I agree. I agree. And, and to be honest, I think it's still, it's still 
can be a dangerous choice to to you know have public displays of affection. But this new generation of um, of you know amazing people coming out and growing up in this time, you know, we didn't have that luxury. We grew up in a time of AIDS and being closeted in lots of ways. Although I was pretty much out in high school. Um, well, you so, had yeah. no choice, but that's another story. <laughs> that's, that's another story for another anyway, podcast. This is a perfect time to take a break, and we will be right back with Jim Fall and Miss Coco Peru. Do you want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. And we are back with Jim Fall and Miss Coco Peru. And as we are recording this in late, late April in 2020, we are all in isolation and quarantine and in our homes and doing this remotely. Um, and uh, it's been about, what, like six weeks, five weeks? How are you guys getting on? Well, I'm doing okay. I'm fortunate that I have a partner, a husband, who has still has a job. Of course, all of my work has disappeared, but I have wonderful fans who have been communicating with me because of my uh, Coco thoughts while in solitude that I've been doing. And they write to me the most beautiful messages. They want to then mow me money, but I, they, I tell them they can buy stuff at my store. I've been doing cameos and they've been f- lovely enough to order cameos. So other than that, I'm just so grateful talking about Los Angeles again. I have a yard and a, you know I can go swimming. I speak to my friends in New York City who still live in small apartments with kitchens that aren't really meant to be cooking in. And I just, uh, you know, I count my blessings. If it wasn't for Brian, my boyfriend, who I've been living with for the last two years, I, I think I would have lost my mind by now. Um, he's an amazing cook. He, he, he cooks pretty much every meal and is an angel and takes care of me, you know, in many ways. So that is the that's the blessing in my life right now. You know, professionally, it's 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 a tough time. You know, I've been uh, writing a couple things, and it's a weird time to be motivated. Like I write in fits and starts, and then a day goes by where I haven't done anything. It's like, what am I doing? So it's a bizarre time. It's a it's a hard time, but I'm glad to be living downtown in downtown LA because there's it's plenty of places to walk to, little grocery stores and things that you can get what you need in a safe way with your mask and your gloves. So, um, you know, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Yeah, it's challenging for all all of the creative people that I know. I mean, because we all, you know, we go through our time, you know, wishing like, oh, if only we had a couple of days to do this project or, oh, if only we had this time to do this other project and now suddenly we have nothing but time. And yet the anxiety about like everything that's going on, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a subterranean kind of pressure. And it's it's just... I found it very difficult to get stuff done, at least at the the pace and the quality that I'm used to, like from from, you know, before this craziness. Um, and Jim, speaking as a close friend of yours, all of us would have lost our minds had Brian not stepped on the scene. All of us. So it wasn't just you. <laughs> We're all very grateful that Brian booed you up. Well, I lucked out when I met him. So he's adorable. After Trick, you made a big studio movie, which has since. I think I can easily say become iconic, um, being that you know all the millennials kind of track you down and, and want to ask you about this, which it would be the Lizzie McGuire movie. Um, can you just talk a little bit about this? Because everybody, I'm sure, like a lot of people want to know about it. It was the weirdest thing. And I, I, my, my agent at the time sent me the script. I had no idea what Lizzie McGuire was. I hadn't seen the show. But I went in and luckily... Uh, Doug Short, one of the executives, uh, had seen Trick and loved it. He was He's gay also. 
And um, they really wanted to hire a director that was completely as far away from the original uh, TV show as possible. I think because they wanted the movie to be a movie, right? And I went in there, I think, with the most enthusiasm of, I guess, that's what they told me anyway, of uh, anybody else who had met on that job. Um, but it was, you know, I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul to Disney to make this movie. But when I realized what the movie was, it's basically this lovely, fun trip to Rome, class trip to Rome, rom-com love story set literally in Rome, $17 million budget. I'm like, I'm in, let's do, let's make this wonderful it's movie. It's so great. And I'm really proud of it. It's one of those movies that did not need to be as great as it was in order to make money. And it's it is just, it's that much better than than anyone well, thought that, it would that be. That was my agenda. I, we shot it widescreen 235 on Super 35. You know, I had the our composer, I asked him, I want him to do like a real Merchant Ivory kind of score, Cliff Eidelman. <laughs> and he did this beautiful score. In fact, Clinton and I, went and listened to them record. Remember that, Clint? Oh, yeah. We sat at the Paramount Recording Studio when the orchestra was recording it. And the other thing I remembered that you had to fight for was the um, in the song that she sings, you fought for the strings. The, oh, yeah. Those well, disco strings. And I, uh, I always appreciated right. that. Also, David Friedman, who did my score for Trick, I, I, I pulled him into the Lizzie McGuire world and he wrote um, Open Your Eyes to Love, which is one of the songs that plays in the movie and it's on the soundtrack. And... What Clint's referring to is the big finale song, which Dean Pitchford wrote. But there's two versions. There's the one that's on the album, which is more of a mixed pop, like radio play version. But the one in the movie has like soaring strings and sounds more like it's being sung live. And those strings were arranged by Bob Esty, who has now sadly passed away last year. But he, Bob Esty um, arranged so many things for Donna Summer and all these other disco, disco divas back in the day. So it was a wonderful one. And the fact that these kids love this movie still to this day... Um, I still get so much um, uh, mail about Lizzie. People love Lizzie McGuire. I, I think there's a certain age range where you just mention the Lizzie McGuire movie and it's suddenly, it was this fundamental cinematic cornerstone of their development. It's like, I don't even know what the analog would be for me or, or you. I mean, maybe like for me, it would be like one of those like, movies they would play on HBO over and over again in like 1981. Like, you know, it's, you know, like Looker or something, which is still, well, that is iconic for me, but it's like, you know, Lizzie McGuire like touched so many people and, 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 you know, it, it should have just, I mean, kind of, it should have just been this, you know, whatever Disney release. And well, yet it, it, it was has a lesson. It was a lesson in listening to my gut because trick taught me, Oh, people want to see the same movie. I want to see trick was the movie I wanted to see. Right. And I made Lizzie the same way. I made Lizzie, I made the movie I wanted to see. I didn't make it for kids. I, I included all the, the music and all the things I could possibly squeeze into it on a, in the Disney world. And, um, you know, that's why I guess, I don't know, that's maybe that's why kids like it. I don't know. I, it's so great. And then and then you you kind of were ahead of the curve and you you did some very, very important TV work. Like, you know, basically Wedding Wars is like the one that comes to mind immediately, which was was it the first TV movie to really take on gay marriage? Because it was it was it was a huge controversy when it came out. It had James Brolin, it had John Stamos, a bunch of people. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, it was a lovely uh, a lovely script. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Craig Zayden, who passed away and Neil Marin produced it. Uh, who produced Chicago and a lot of big, big movies. They were about to make Hairspray when we made Wedding Wars, a TV movie. But yeah, it was a, a rom-com about gay the gay marriage issue back in 2006. And that was kind of ahead of its time, maybe too far ahead of its time, because I'm not sure people got it. It was on A&E also, which A&E is not really known for making TV movies. But <laughs> <laughs> And it was the last one they made for a very long time. But on the DVD, it's interesting, Neil Marin, or maybe it's Craig, says... You know, I don't think gay marriage is going to pass maybe in or 10 or so years. And it passed within like four years. So in a weird way, we were at a point then where it was, a, we were a little pessimist, pessimistic about whether or not gay marriage would actually happen. And it happened a lot faster than I think we even thought when we made that movie. So what we're really learning, Jim, is between, you know, Trick, Lizzie and Wedding Wars, you are on the forefront of culture right now, oh, basically. Yeah. Oh yeah, you, it's like culture equals Jim Fall. Oh oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> and Miss Coco, can you tell me a little bit about uh, you know after Trick, you came to L.A., you were playing your shows and Tu Wong Fu before Trick. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, you 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 were a drag queen. 
before, like, you know, RuPaul Drag Race, before it became this, like, kind of mainstream thing. Can you tell me about, like, you know, how culture is kind of caught up with what you've been doing this whole time? It is funny. I've seen recent shows come on television that I pitched 20 years ago to Logo. So it does always feel like, you know, but that's kind of the world I wanted to create when I created Coco. I wanted to change the world. And it sounds corny, but I wanted to make the world easier for the gay people following me. So um, I'm thrilled when I see these shows on television and it's happening. And I'm thrilled that I've had a career for 30 years doing drag because, and I'm going to, follow up on what Jim said about following your gut. I think that's always been one of my main things that I've ha- I have to always remind myself that when I created Coco, there were people saying, drag, a drag queen who talks and does monologues, that doesn't make sense. You're throwing away your theater career. There were a lot of people telling me not to do it, but I followed my gut. Again with Trick, telling Jim, put 88s away. I think this is the future. This is your. This is going to be your first movie. It was a gut feeling. And then YouTube for me, you know, it's just some. My manager said, "Let's let's do a video. What what, what do you think is funny?" I said, "Me shopping for tension tamity. That's funny to me." <laughs> <laughs> and it went viral. You know, so it is a lot of it is following your gut and staying true to yourself. And as you know, probably being in this business. That can be very difficult to stay true to yourself. And and it might sometimes feel like you're not doing well or you feel like a loser because you see other things happening around you. But at the end of the day, I feel I feel fortunate that I've had a 30-year career while also, I think, for the most part, being true to my my vision. And I just want to tell our, our listeners, like, if you have not seen one of Miss Coco Peru's YouTubes, you must. It's just the, the Grand Theft Auto one. I swear, I, I literally watch that at least once every couple of months because it is the funniest damn thing. It's I've embarrassing ever to seen. me because I think those are so stupid. When people come up to me and say, oh, Coco, we love you, we love you. And I go, oh, well, what show of mine have you seen? Or they go, no, YouTube. Exactly. It's a whole new world. <laughs> so many people know you from those videos because when we were playing Trick last summer for the 20th anniversary around the country at different gay film festivals, a couple of different screenings, the younger audience was like, oh, that's that, that's, I love her from her videos. Like they knew you from your videos before they knew anything about Trick. So you have, you have evolved past, you have stayed current, honey, you've stayed current, which is great. Trick was made at a very specific time in independent film. And now, I mean, it's completely changed. I know that the next project for both of you, or one of the next projects, is a sequel to Trick. And it must be just a very different situation. Well, I always loved the ending of Trick and also, in my gut, never really believed that, that Gabriel and Mark were going to, like, last and be perfect boyfriends forever, given how different they were. And that always kind of was in the back of my head, which is why I love that Trick had an open ending. You know, you don't really ever see them get together after that day. So when enough time had passed, you know, I've grown up, we've all grown up. I didn't want to make another movie about 20-somethings. I wanted to make a movie about 40-somethings. I'm 50-something. But so the idea of making a sequel to see what's happened to all of our characters 20 years later to me is really fascinating because so much has changed. So much has changed. Like in the first movie, there's no cell phones. Everybody's smoking in bars. You know, it's it's a completely, there's no Facebook, there's no online this. The, you know, the internet existed, you know, computers existed, but it was in its infancy. We weren't socializing that way. So to me, it was exciting to make a sequel because all the characters for the most part would be adults. It, was, it, will, it will, will be about really Gabriel and Mark actually falling in love this time as opposed to one night 20 years ago where they you know fell in lust and fell in a fat infatuation well it's interesting because i you know jim and i people don't know this jim and i were part of a writer's group and we would all like give each other our scripts and one of the scripts that i read and this was a couple of years ago was trick two and i read a few drafts of it and i think the really interesting and brilliant part of this script is it's very much about middle-aged men who find love and like what does it mean because it's a very different thing to fall in love in your like you know 40s or 50s 
uh, I guess the, uh, these guys are in their late, late 40s, I think. Early 40s, um, like 42, 43. Yeah, okay. It's a very different thing to fall in love in your 40s than it is in your 20s. It is. And, it is, and, 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 yeah. and you really, like, kind of ask those very kind of mature and difficult questions. I mean, it's still lovely and wonderful and romantic, and I just can't even talk enough about it. It's a wonderful script. I, I cannot wait for you guys to make it. But um, it's, it's really mature and heartfelt, and it's not, like, silly like i think 20 something love like like we get to this point and it's just like yeah that's nice it's you know it's 20 something love but like 40 something love it's a different animal entirely well one more thing one more note about it is you know again continuing the theme of listening to your gut trick two really is about the fact that gabriel forgot kind of who he was and when he meets when he runs into mark again 20 years later the go-go boy who's now evolved into this you know, three-dimensional person who's stuck to his um, his dream and has ha- has this wonderful life back, still back in New York. Gabriel's in 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 L.A. It makes Gabriel question all his choices for the last twenty years because he basically put his dreams aside to kind of support someone else's dreams. And so his crisis of consciousness is like, do I rediscover who I used to be or do I stay in this comfortable life I've created? So, and one of the most delightful parts of the script is. The fact that Coco, yet again, has an amazing, major, pivotal moment with amazing monologue. Oh, my God. That that monologue is it's if you if you thought the monologue in trick was great, just just wait. It's amazing. Like and I know that uh, Coco, you helped create or or develop or write this monologue, well, this, parti- wrote this sequel, this whole monologue. And I ask, I, oh, it's I, amazing. I put it's it amazing. in, I put the slot in the script. I'm like, I need, it's another bathroom scene, although it's not, it's a different kind of bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked Clint, cause I, I wrote this sequel. Uh, Jason wrote the first one. I wrote this whole script. Uh, and I asked Clinton specifically, will you please write a monologue? Uh, and you did, right? Mm-hmm. It was something actually that I had written for my one, one of my one person shows. But I thought the message of it could work within Jim's script. So I rewrote it a little bit j- just so it could fit in his little, um, that little slot he gave me. Yeah, although you have a much bigger role in Trick 2. You are a full in and out of drag character. So it's a much, it's not just a uh, cameo appearance. Yeah. Well, and, and the character has developed. I mean, the character in the first movie was kind of a psychopath, just a little well, bit. In my defense, and this is where Jim and I disagree, uh, <laughs> you know, when I did uh, the, the Trick movie, um, there w- when I saw Trick for the first time, I was sort of taken aback by the scene where he says that I had videotaped him. I do not remember ever a reading where that was included in the script. That came after all the readings were done. So I was actually a little appalled by that because <laughs> I'm sort of playing a version of myself do you know what I mean? And I have no problem being kind of, you know, a bitch. But that is that was kind of creepy to me that I was portrayed as someone who was hiding a video camera in the thing. And there was a there was a scene at the very end of the movie where I do confront uh, Mark and and he apologizes to me or something. Do you remember that? No. There was a scene in the movie. That's why you had me walk past the window of the diner. It was no, the bathroom could, stall, right? All, all you did no, was come out of the bathroom no. stall and go, ooh, no, that No, but there was an terrible. earlier version where I go up to the table and I have a <gasps> confrontation right. with him. You're right. I forgot that. And oh that my. was cut. Oh, my God. You're right. That, I totally forgot that. So uh, I always thought that's how it was dealt with. But you later added to make me seem more evil that moment. And I do remember feeling a little bit, that's awkward. <laughs> well, honey. But. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that broadside you. But you know what I really, <laughs> what I really wanted to do is because I knew that if we could show the the footage of this video you took while while this blowjob with Mark was supposedly happening, it could be really funny. So I have worked into the sequel that that 20 year old VHS blurry video that creepy Coco had recorded <laughs> recorded. <laughs> back in the day is going to rear its ugly head when Mark's non-English speaking mother finds the tape and pops it in the VHS. <laughs> you're going to have to do, you're going to have to do whatever. Um, wh- who's the director that just did the movie where he made everybody look younger? Oh, that was oh, Scorsese. No, no. Honey, Scorsese. It's going to be the back of your head. You're not going to see faces. Oh, okay. The fine. back of your head. 
and you're going to see like it's going to be blurry and it's not really going to be very clear but we're going to see a red wig going up and down and like mark's torso and then cameras are going to fall over mark's going to yell and leave the room wonderful this is this is these are the this is movie magic happening I mean, these are right exclusive. now on these are on exclusive. these on this podcast this is movie magic right here for you so like before we leave i do want to touch base on um you know kind of where we're at in media right now and and where do you think we're going i mean you guys have done work that is notable by any stretch of anybody's imagination um you know with lgbt cinema and, and television and 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 theater and i know that it's challenging to get anything made now it's challenging then it's challenging now how do creators get stuff made how do you guys get stuff made i don't know i just I just do it, but I. What I will say, what what, what concerns me is people's attention spans are very small nowadays. It, it's interesting that when young people come to my shows, my actual shows, which run about an hour and fifteen minutes, I have to tell them, turn off your phones, don't check Grinder, you know, and remind them throughout the show sometimes because people are not used to being able to sit still, even in a movie nowadays, you know. So that is something that has definitely changed. So when I do the YouTube stuff, the thing, it, I'm always worried, I, I, you know, six minutes, oh my God, that's too long. <laughs> you know, it's right. a different, it's a different world. And I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I answered your question. I think I just kind of went off on a... <laughs> no, no, Clint, tangent. you're, you're doing more current stuff than 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 I really am. I mean, part of me is like, I don't care where we're going. I don't really care. I, 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 but I think wherever we go, no matter what it is, and it's about storytelling and it's about telling stories. So storytelling... That, that's, that's my truth as well. Um, I keep thinking, I've been in this business 30 years, hopefully be retiring soon. It's going to be what it's going to be. I'm just grateful I've lasted so long. But I will say this, with doing the Cocoa Thoughts While in Solitude, where I'm just pulling stuff that's around my house and talking about it. During this quarantine, I'm amazed at how many, how many people are responding to the simple idea of just listening to a story. And I can't tell you how many people tell me they go to bed listening to my horrible Bronx accent <laughs> and they find it comforting. Just a story. It's like people have become vulnerable and childlike again. And I don't think storytelling ever goes away. It might get corrupted along the way, but it never goes away. It's really what connects us as human beings. And that's what the magic of movies is. I agree. I think that's beautifully said. And I think that's a good place to leave this conversation. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Jim Fall. Thank, Thank you, Ms. Coco Thank you. Peru. Now, we've left all the dirt out. <laughs> you cannot. You cannot. Okay. Okay. He's cutting this. I'm just teasing him. <laughs> Thank you, Jim Fall. Thank you, Miss Coco Peru. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash The Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail El-Sharif and Alan Konigsberg. Special thanks to Damian Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about OutFest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to OutFest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm Dave Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next time. <laughs>